Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for this beautiful afternoon. Thank you for all of our friends and family that are here for um, this beautiful church that you're building amongst all of us. God, thank you for dwelling in our midst and pouring out your spirit in this place. We bless you, Lord, for um, everything you're doing here. We bless you for the message that um, you're going to give each one of us, including me this afternoon. God, we bless you for Etz Chaim, for the synagogue and the community here that, that supports and loves us well. And we thank you, God, for their hospitality to us, and we see your goodness in them. And uh, Jesus, we give you glory for everything we do and, and for this next time together. In your name, amen. All right. So, welcome to Spark. If this is your first time, welcome. We don't do meet and greet because we have a lot of introverts here. So, um, we do that before or after service when we can also have food and, and coffee in between us and the person that we have to talk to. So, um, so it do meet and greet after or before. Um, but if you're here and it's your first time, please know that you're welcome and we're thrilled that you're here and really glad to have you. Um, so we are right in the midst, or actually towards the tail end of our Jesus series. We've been asking a whole bunch of questions of Jesus. And the reason why we ask questions is because Jesus did. I don't know if you recall, in the beginning of Luke, it talks about Jesus going to the temple in Jerusalem, and he's hanging out and talking with the sages, and he's like 12, and um, they're amazed at his many questions. Um, so we've decided that it's good to ask questions, and... Um, and the thing that is wonderful about asking a question is it makes the conversation continue. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Like if there's a, a lull in a conversation where you're hanging out with somebody, ask a question. And then it can continue on again. So when we ask questions of Jesus and of the text, it's our way of continuing the conversation with Jesus. It's our way of continuing the conversation in our community. And it's also a stance of humility to say we may not know all the answers yet. And in um, Judaism and rabbinic Judaism, there's a tradition that when you get to a question that you've asked of God or of the text and you don't know the answer of it, then you dance. Um, And you dance because you just realize that God is bigger than you and you're a thimble full of brains, and he's big, and that the relationship continues, that you've not come to um, the end of your own knowledge. Um, you're, at, you're at the beginning of it, and there's more to discover and understand. So and join us then as we start our Jesus um, lesson tonight called How Much More. How, have you guys heard that phrase before in the Gospels, how much more? That is a wonderful question that Jesus asks over and over and over again. And actually, it's asked 21 times in our New Testament. How much more? How much more? And it's based on a lovely rabbinic technique that was very present in Jesus' day. And it's also based on a type of argument called an a priori argument that's from the Latin context as well, right? So if A, then B or if A plus B equals C, and then D. So this is kind of how that works, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about that and try to understand Jesus in light of rabbinic thought. What's happened a lot in Christianity, and I say this um, as a member of the tribe of of Jesus followers, is that oftentimes when we started um, growing as a church nearly 2,000 years ago, um, within the first few hundred years, there was still a tight connection uh, within the first hundred years or so um, to our Jewish root and and cultural context. A lot of times when people study Jesus, they like to talk about Jesus's Jewish background. Um, Maybe we might say it's not quite a background, but it's actually his entire original setting. So it's not his Jesus for Jesus. The Judaism of his day it doesn't just sit here and, and is ornamental and interesting occasionally. But he's actually fully placed in it. 
And that is where he fully sits and where all of the teaching that he teaches can sort of hang out, as well as the teaching of the rest of the New Testament written almost predominantly by Jews or Jewish followers of Jesus. Um, There might be one or two um, converts to Judaism who are writing as well. Luke might be one. We call him a God-fearer. So in that context, as, as Christianity was growing, there started to be early on a tendency for us as Christians to not look at Judaism and say, oh, we are indebted to Judaism as the mother and father that gave birth to our faith and gave birth to our Messiah. But instead, we started to look back and say, let's talk about how different we are from Judaism. And so rather than looking at our indebtedness, does that kind of make sense? We started leaning on our differences. And differences are important, and they're important today too. But today I'd like to talk a little bit more about leaning into our indebtedness to Judaism. And instead of, um, and perhaps we can sort of rise up and honor our parents, our spiritual parents in the people of Israel, our mother and father, as Jesus teaches us to honor our parents. Um, And instead of um, maybe Perhaps we can rise up and call our mother and father blessed rather than blind. And I don't know if you've had that experience, but I've found that oftentimes when we are thinking about Jewish context um, from nearly 2,000 years ago or even today, even as we have different conversations, interfaith conversations, we often do so from the perspective of here's why we're different, here's why I'm right, here's why you're wrong, here's why I see things clearly, here's why you're blind. The problem is that when we do that, we don't just pull Jesus out of his cultural context— We actually strip him entirely of the Jewish flesh that he was placed in. And so today, I know Spark does this a lot, but as we ask these questions about Jesus, we're going to kind of hang out with this how much more question because it's a very wonderful rabbinic Jewish question to ask. And Jesus hangs out and teaches in rabbinic thought quite a bit. And because we don't know that stuff, because we're you know, 2,000 years later, and we've removed ourselves from a lot of that context, we miss it. For example, did you know that how much more was a phrase in Jesus's day that it's a rabbinic argument and that it's occurred 21 times in your New Testament? How cool is that? Maybe we should pay attention to that. If all of our writers of our New Testament are using this as one of their arguments, and it would have floated well in their day, maybe there's something more we can learn there. The ancient sages, um, just prior to Jesus, during Jesus' day, and after, um, and I'm going to speak in broad generalities. This is a very huge study, and maybe we'll um, continue to offer rabbinic thought classes or something like that. Um, This fall, Rabbi Moshe might be coming back to the area for us, those of you who came to his his talk last fall. Um, So we have some more opportunities for that. But when we talk about Jewish sages, um, we're going to start to talk about their reverence for the text. And not just their reverence for the text, but the entire culture and community that they were in. Even the Romans, who didn't have the Torah that they were carrying around little pocket Torahs with them, um, they still so revered the Jewish text and that these were people that had a text that at 70, no, I think it was in the second Jewish revolt in the Bar Kokhba revolt around 135 AD, when Roman soldiers pushed through and some of them grabbed hold of a Torah scroll and set it on fire, they got in trouble with Rome for doing that. Rome themselves said, we value this text. We are interested in it. So if the Romans valued it, how much more then would the Jewish people of Jesus' day value this book? Yep. In fact, this week going around Facebook was this beautiful um, clip of Chinese Christians modern day receiving Bibles for the first time. And I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it's quite emotional. And there's, you know, this move to go and 
grab, everyone's getting one, and so they can go and grab one out, and, and tears are streaming down their faces as they hold the text for the first time. And this isn't about worshiping the text, but it's about knowing that this story that, that we all carry around with us, um, it sheds some light on who we are, how we're loved by the Father, and what our purpose is in this world. So, so let's sit and hang out with this every jot and tittle. The Jewish sages said that if God could have said it in less words, he would have. So if he said it twice, three, five, four times, five times, or if he used that word specifically that way, or if he's repeated it in this different way, he's done that on purpose. If this word shows up here and then it doesn't show up again for another book or another 10 chapters until here, God did that on purpose. They had such a high level of esteem for the text that every jot and tittle was paid attention to. And you can hear this in Jesus. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, and excuse me, Matthew chapter 6. Nope, back in five. Sorry, I've been reading a lot today. Verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets, but I've come, not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a, t- of a pen, not a jot or a tittle, will by any means disappear from the Torah until everything is accomplished. And anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus himself hangs on to that jot and tittle. There were even stories that ran around in Jesus's day that if you messed up one small little stroke of a pen, you could get to a very weird different place. And they said that King Solomon, as in Deuteronomy, was instructed that kings were instructed to have few wives and few horses. And as we know, King Solomon had many, many wives and lots and lots of horses that they said, ah, he missed the jot and tittle. And so the word switched from few to many. And immediately he started living his life differently because there was an error in how he was reading it. So every small little stroke of the pen matters. I love the way that they talk about the text, these ancient sages. They talk about how the text has 70 faces, that it's like a gem that sits in a diamond ring, and that it's as you turn the gem, you see the different facets to the gem. So if you've discovered one interpretation, one face, one facet of the text, good for you, you've got 69 more to go. Isn't that a different way of looking at it than I grew up with? I was told oftentimes, here's what this means. Good job. Got that. Filled that box out. You got it right on the test. Bible college. Woohoo. And now you check that off and you move on, right? Because you figured out what that means. But now that I sit and kind of hang out with the Jewish sages of Jesus's day and Jesus himself, I get to see how much more there is to discover, how much more there's to discover in all that Jesus is doing and saying in the text. Each word is specific. Each word is significant. Every jot and tittle matters. So let's start to look at a few of them. Matthew chapter 6, 22 through 23. And I have the text up, but we also have Bibles, I think, around, or maybe not. And you probably have phones, so go ahead and pull that up. Um, and if you're, if you're Facebooking, you can say how awesome this is. Go for that. Okay, so uh, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 22 and 23, reads as follows. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? 
And this is, that's from Matthew chapter, 20, 20, chapter 6, verses 22 and on. Now that phrase, if your eye is good, anybody ever wanted to know what that meant? Yes, right? Now, in some of your NIVs, it actually now today, I just read a translation that says, if your eye is healthy. Does anyone have that? If your eyes are healthy or your eyes are unhealthy. And I'm like, what does that mean? Well, this is a Jewish idiom, a Hebrew idiom of Jesus' day. And if your eye is good, it means if you're generous. Even today in Israel, if someone's generous, you'll say, you have a good eye. Yeah. And so that person would sit there and say, ah, I see that you have a, you've looked at that situation and that you have generously given to it. So if your eye is good, ein tova, then that means you're generous. If somebody's not generous, if they're stingy today in Israel and, and Hebrew idiom in Jesus day, you'd say you have a bad eye. Now, if you look at the way that you, in full context, Jesus is talking here in, in Matthew chapter 6, right before he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of your body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. It's generosity. It's how we deal with money. It's how we deal with the poor. It's how we care for others in our midst. Does that make more sense? Yay! Okay, go Jesus, and way to go studying Hebrew idioms. So I say that mostly, throw that point out, not because it's our primary text today, but because I want us all to see that if we study just a little bit of context for Jesus' words, how much more will we be able to actually apply his words in our life? Because if we were all going and looking at eye charts and trying to figure out if we had 20-20 vision, then we were in trouble, right? Okay. Now we're going to move into this great rabbinic argument called Cal Vechomer. There was a guy, his name was Hillel, and he was Hillel the Elder, and he lived before Christ um, and a, just about a contemporary with Jesus. From 30 BC to 10 AD, he was most active. And Hillel developed seven principles of biblical interpretation. Now, we're not going to go through all seven today because it would take, like, a course. And you're all very thankful that I'm not doing it, although I do have them written down in case you're curious afterwards. But um, it looks as though Jesus is participating in most of these biblical interpretations. And one of the primary ones is called Calva Homer, which literally means light and heavy, an argument from a minor premise to a major one. And Calva Homer arguments are the how much more argument. This is Hillel's first principle of interpretation. Now, the first thing also that Hillel started with, everyone in Jesus' day started with, was they said, the text will interpret the text. So if you have a question about the text, then you read the text to figure out the answer to that question. And then you continue to ask more questions. You don't go to another source to let that source interpret the Bible. You let God interpret himself. So that was their first primary way of moving forward. Let's look then at Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. This is one of my favorite Calva Homer, how much more arguments that Jesus gives, mostly because I need to remember it all the time. So Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Calva Homer will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? 
So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This sums up the Torah and the prophets, which is really fun because Hallel says something very similar to that last verse. So Jesus says, which of you, if your son has asked for a bread, will give him a stone? Any of you? Any of you would do that? What if it's just even a complete stranger comes up to you and asks for bread? Would you give them a stone? As a joke, maybe. Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Write their name on it. They'll get a new stone with their name written on it. <laughs> or if he asks for a fish, are you going to give him a snake? And if that's me, don't do that because I'll freak out. Um, so if then, though you are evil, not meaning that all of us here in the room are evil, but though we're human, though we're not God, if we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more then will our Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This is a regular rabbinic argument used in Jesus' day. And you could go, oh, that's interesting, Danielle. Thanks for telling us that Jesus is hanging out with other rabbis of his day and using that argument. But if we practiced this argument, what arguments might we come up with? So this week, um, our dog, who is 14 and old, had come down with a terrible case of bronchitis, chronic bronchitis. And um, this basically means that there's constant hacking at all hours of the night and of the day, and it's, we can't stop it. It's very tough. We've taken him to the vet like three times already. We're now giving him injections in the morning and night, trying to get the cough to start. It's real, it's, it's sad. Okay, bronchitis. By the way, it's, you know, he's old, but you can't put a dog down for a bad cough. Like, that's just terrible, right? So, like, he's peppy the rest of the time. So, I'm watching Kevin all week, take care of this dog. I'm like taking care of the dog. I've now taken to like putting my earbuds in and turning up the music as loud as possible to drown out the hacking because it's so disturbing. It just sounds like it hurts. And I know that sounds like I'm a terrible person, but I'm serious. Like I can't handle it anymore. So I'm watching Kevin sit out in our driveway because if there's a breeze, the dog stops coughing. And I'm watching Kevin hear from the other room the hacking. I'm picking up Davey, trying like 16 positions, walking him all around, putting him outside in the front, trying to put him, no food. He won't even eat bacon. Like we're moving through the whole thing. And then, yeah, and then Kevin, it's like, that's it. Three in the morning, picks up the dog, goes and walks him around the block. So he'll start coughing for a few minutes and get the cold air in his lungs. And I'm watching Kevin do this. And I'm thinking, if you'll do that for the dog... How much more will you do that for me when I'm old and hacking? That's good news, right? <laughs> like, this is how the Calva Homer argument works in my life. <laughs> the dog is cute and easily picked up, but the hacking is horrible. And you can't get angry and you can't get upset and you can't reason with the dog. By the way, I looked up like chronic cough and hacking and they were like, okay, if your child is chronically hacking at night, you need to try hypnosis. I'm like, that dog is not going to get hypnotized. Um, and then you also need to reason with the dog and try reason with the child and get them to hold their breath for a few minutes because it starts like the hiccups. And then I'm like, yeah, like I'm going to get Davy to hold his breath. That's not going to happen. So the only relief that we get is when Kevin or I starts to get as creative as humanly possible. So the dog now, uh, by the way, three nights this week at midnight, guess where I was? In and out buying a burger for the dog so I could smuggle the patty, the pill into the patty because he's figured out that we're pill smugglers now. And so he has this, it's like Kevin said this afternoon, it's like a Pez dispenser. You put the, the meat patty with the pill like all hidden in, covered and slattered with some cheese or some, some butter. And you're like, yes, yes. And he goes, and now out the pill, just the pill. 
I don't know why he's doing it. He doesn't have teeth. Just swallow, just swallow. So all of this to say the Calvachomer argument in my life applies to this, right? I can look at Kevin and say, wow, if he's that patient with our dog, how much more patient will he be with children in our life? If he's that patient with and that loving and caring in this situation, how much more loving and caring will he be for me um, when I'm 120 and then I get sick? Not till before then. So um, all of that to say, in your life, in my life, what Calvachomer arguments might you and I use? If I spend this much time playing Mario Kart, Calvachomer, how much more time should I be spending in the Word of God? So just sit with that for a few minutes, because I think there's some fun ways that if we start to follow Jesus' example of participating in this teaching, we might learn more about him, but also be able to apply that in our life today. So we're going to try to understand Jesus a little bit more. To that end, let's open up Matthew chapter 12. Now, as I was preparing for this, I felt like I'm doing an injustice because there's so much more. How much more is there to tell you? Which is why we're going to do something fun this summer. So um, just right now, though, hang with me. Matthew chapter 12. And in Matthew chapter 12, we're going to start to see several different rabbinic interpretive techniques for understanding Jesus's world and words. We're going to see an allusion to another passage of scripture. We're going to see Jesus interpret the text from another passage of Scripture. We're going to see him give a prioritization of commandments. And I'm going to explain what that is in just a minute. And then we're also going to see Calva Homer, all in just 12 verses. These are all things that rabbis in Jesus' day, sages of Jesus' day, did. And once we start to know what those are, we can start to read and understand more of what Jesus is saying. So let's look at Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Apparently, I animated these, and I don't know why, but there, there they are. So, sorry. It's like the ticker taper parade. Okay. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. By the way, your disciples, not Jesus, They didn't say, you're doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. They said, your disciples are. I just think that's important in case you ever wanted to go, well, Jesus came and then I don't have to obey anything ever again. Um, Jesus is constantly obeying the Torah. He says he won't throw it out. So this is the issue. What is it, what's permitted to be done on the Sabbath? No work. You're not supposed to do any work. Well, what constitutes work? If you were out in your field and you were sitting there and doing the full harvest, would that be hard work? Yes? I have one tiny grapevine in my house. At my house, it's, well, it's, it's big, but it's one vine. And it will take me three days to get all the grapes off that vine. And that's work. And there's spiders. So there's a lot going on. So I don't do that on a Sabbath, right? On a Shabbat, because that would be a lot of hard work. But would it be permitted on a Shabbat to go and grab a couple ripe grapes and sit and eat them under my vine? Some rabbis would say, yes, absolutely no problem. Other rabbis would say, no, because if you do that, how much more quickly will you be apt to break the command? So just don't pick at all. So that's the discussion and the debate that they're having in Jesus' day as they're walking through the grain fields. By the way, we know what time of year it is by the discussion of what they're doing. Has anybody ever um, taken a piece of grain and eaten it? You're going to like crack a tooth, right? 
if you grab hard grain from the store that's not ground yet for flour, like wheat or barley. But when the, when the grain is green, you can go and pick it and put a little bit in your mouth. So it's springtime, and they're walking through the fields. And it means that also the fields haven't been harvested yet, so once they're dried out a bit more, then they'll be ready for harvest. Okay, let's continue our story. They asked him, look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. And he answered them, well, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day? So actually, we'll stop right here. Can you imagine saying to a group of religious leaders, Pharisees, teachers of the Torah, haven't you read the book? Is that funny? Right? Could you imagine saying that? Like, haven't you, haven't you read that? I think it's hilarious. And then Jesus starts to interpret an event that happened in 1 Samuel 21. Now, this would be really common in his day. Everybody knows the text. They know the text. General people in the community know the text, and Jesus knows it. So they're knowing it by heart. So now Jesus is going to start to talk about that text. He's going to interpret that story for his audience to better understand it today. We would call it a sermon. Okay? So someone, he's going to interpret this story for them a little bit. And he's going to give a bit of some example. As he continues on, he says, Or haven't you read, hilarious, in the Torah that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, at this point, several things have happened with just a few lines. And a lot of us, again, I grew up not knowing any of this context, so I would just read it and go, I don't know why they're so upset about that whole grass thing. Like, just eat that. It's fine. But Jesus starts with the haven't you read, which is hilarious. Jesus is really funny. You guys will just trust me. You're going to have to start laughing when you read through the Gospels. He's really funny. Okay. So he's going to interpret an additional passage of text. And then he says who he is. In the midst of this conversation, Jesus starts to explain who he is in light of everything. He's like, by the way, one greater than the temple is here. God incarnate, God in human flesh is here greater than the temple, wouldn't you say? Greater than God's house would be God. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and this is from Hosea 6.6, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Why would Jesus be quoting Hosea there? Is it just pretty? Is it just like a nice thing to say? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Let's look at Hosea. Okay, rabbis did this really wonderful thing, and Jesus is a master at it. They quote a verse out of a passage, and this is called an allusion or a hint. And oftentimes what Jesus is doing when he, when he quotes that verse, and he's going to do this all throughout the Gospels, is he's not actually saying only what that verse is, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, but he's saying what came before and what came after that verse. And everybody knows it because they have the whole thing memorized. So if you go to Hosea chapter 6, this whole passage is about how Israel has been unrepentant. They have not turned back to God. And God is sitting there saying, what can I do with you? 
What's going to happen? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have broken the covenant and they were unfaithful to me there. So in that moment, Jesus says, haven't you read? And don't you know? And by the way, God's talking about you. Powerful, right in the midst of it. If you had only known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And in that moment, just with a few words, Jesus starts to hint to a larger story of Israel's unrepentance, of their um, rejection of God in the midst of that Hosea text. And there's much more that you can go and read up through. In fact, there's even an allusion to to three days in Hosea chapter 6. And then he says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now that phrase, Son of Man, can mean Messiah. And it can also mean just this man standing here, right here. So either way you interpret that works for Jesus. Okay, go back with me then to Matthew chapter 6, in case you flipped over to Hosea. Because we're going to finish, excuse me, Matthew chapter 12. We're going to finish in our little section here. Are you guys having fun yet? It's going to be fun. Here's the thing. When I went to Bible college, I didn't learn any of this. And um, I had to go buy plane tickets and live in another land and go and read different books and spend all my extra money on Amazon.com and have lots of conversations with Kevin and other teachers and everything else in order to get here. The reason why I want to share all of this with you today is because I don't want to be one of two or three people in the room that knows this. This is your story. It's my story too. You're going to read this, and if I give you a few tools to read Jesus's. Jesus a little bit, just a little bit of his cultural context. It's going to pop to you, and then we can teach each other. So I just want you to know that um, we're taking time to look at how Jesus teaches because we want you to be as equipped as we are. And we're not trying to hold any secret information up here. We're going to share it all with you. Okay, so going on then from that place, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, in the middle of all of this Sabbath discussion, Jesus is essentially saying, what's the priority of your command? And in Jesus' day, people had various opinions. If you wanted, okay, let's say this. Your mother says to you, don't run in the house. But there's a fire, and she shouts, fire, fire! What are you going to do? Run, right? So in that moment, the priority of command is obey the command, fire, fire, and get out and run out of the house versus, but my mom one time told me don't run in the house. And that's like her big rule, right? So you can prioritize your commands. You would do the same thing today, even driving, right? You might break the speed limit for a few minutes to get beyond a a driver that clearly doesn't know what they're doing because that's dangerous, And so the command then here, the priority of command is safety, preservation of life, right? I have to speed because I have to get around this driver. So you prioritize the commands in order, you might break one in order to keep another, right? Okay, the same was true in Jesus's day. So if it's the Sabbath and your sheep or donkey falls into a pit, do you just walk by and go, sorry, donkey, sorry, sheep, you just stay there because, you know, I got like five more hours of daylight Sabbath time and then I'll come back and get you later. You would never do that. 
right? It's like listening to my dog honking, coughing for hours. I can't even imagine the sound a donkey and a sheep make from a pit, from a well, and like echoing out, right? You're going to save that animal. But now have you just done some work on the Sabbath? Does that sound like work, trying to get a wild animal out of a pit? Yeah, that sounds like work, right? So the choice is to break the command of work. Don't work, don't work. So you break that command in order to keep the command of preservation of life. And everybody in Jesus' day was having that conversation. In fact, the parable of the Good Samaritan might be part of that conversation. Because the priest and the Levite might be needing to keep laws of cleanliness, and they can't touch the man that is dying, because they'll be made unclean. Maybe, or maybe not. But that's part of the conversation that, that overall they're having. Okay, so how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Much more? Yes, would you say? Great. So Jesus, all he has to do is say, stretch out your hand. The man is healed. He actually hasn't done any work on the Sabbath. And then he demonstrates priority of command, which is an argument or discussion that everyone was having to have have all the time. They had this conversation with Jesus also in John chapter 7. So in context, let me show you this other passage. Do you guys remember John chapter 7? They go to him and they're talking about all this. And Jesus says, hey, sometimes you break the Sabbath command because if your son is born and he has to be circumcised on the eighth day and the eighth day happens to be a Sabbath, what do you do? Do you break the law of circumcision because you don't want to pick up a tool on Sabbath? Or do you keep the Sabbath, you know, do you keep circumcision and, and break the Sabbath? What do you do? You have to decide. Jesus introduces that discussion. And because Jesus and other rabbis like him were saying preservation of life is the most important, we even have in the Yoma, in the Babylonian Talmud, which is rabbinic writings later from Jesus, Rabbi Eliezer says this, if circumcision, which involves only one of the 248 parts of the human body, suspends Shabbat, Calvachomer, how much more must saving the whole body suspend Shabbat? So other rabbis in Jesus' day said, yes, you must save human life, even on Shabbat. And today in Israel, there are communities that have made that decision. And so ambulances and doctors and nurses, those people involved in the preservation of life, work full on the Sabbath even in places where that Sabbath keeping is very strict because preservation of life is the higher command than Sabbath keeping. So Jesus engages with all of those debates in his day. He does all of that stuff. And then if we start looking at additional ways that he teaches, we're going to start to identify this big question, does Jesus say he was God? And I don't know if, yep, he does. But I don't know if, has anybody heard Jesus never said that? Anybody ever Why didn't he just come right out and say, I'm God, here's what's going on, blah, blah, blah. Has anybody heard, like, History Channel, PBS kind of thing? Jesus never said he was God. If you know the text, and if you know rabbinic techniques, Jesus is saying that he's God all the time. So let me just show you one last more, because I can't can't help myself. Okay. Matthew chapter 11, at the very end, Jesus says this, right before that passage we were just studying in Matthew 12. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In that passage, Jesus declares that he is God. He speaks like God speaks. Anyone catch it? Know where it is? 
Okay, raise your hand if you think it's the come to me part. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is quoting Exodus chapter 33, verse 14. Text interprets text. And in Exodus chapter 33, verse 14, Moses has experienced the glory of God, and he is there with God, and he is saying to the Lord, you've been telling me lead these people, but you've not let me know who, will, who you will send with me. You've said I'll know you by name, and you've said you've found favor with me, and if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I can know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Moses is sitting there complaining to God, I, I don't know what to do. I'm alone. These people are crazy. I need help. And the Lord says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God's the one that says that line. So when Jesus is talking, he says, by the way, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, which Moses certainly was. And it's in the middle of that glory of God that Moses experienced the glory of the Lord. And then Jesus says, and I will give you rest. By quoting this passage, Jesus speaks with the voice of God. He says, I am God. Only God says that. Other rabbis don't walk around saying, I'll give you rest. Jesus declares divinity again and again in many different ways. But oftentimes it's in the ways that we can't hear because we're Western, we've lost context, we've lost connection with our text. And so when we read that, we just go, oh, isn't that pretty and nice? That just means Jesus won't give me more than I can handle. Well, let me tell you, about day four of coughing this week, I was like, Jesus, I cannot handle any more of the coughing. And I think you've given me more than I can handle. I was texting a friend that I couldn't meet her that day because I had not slept all night for like three nights. And as I'm texting her in the morning, like I'm falling asleep and I'm sending random weird things. Like, I need rest. I, I am weary, I am burdened, so I'm going to just hold that right. Now, that's beautiful, and I think that's true, and Jesus does give us rest, but I think additionally what he's declaring in my life and in yours is that he is Lord, he is God, and he starts to quote beautiful passages and stories. So if just a little bit of this study has helped grab hold and hopefully made us a little bit excited to read our Gospels and kind of dive in and study a bit more. Because once you have somebody show this to you one time, you can see it for yourself. And Kevin and I are the examples of that, as are many of you. You just get a little bit of a taste and you get to see it for yourself. So let's practice how much more. Okay, so I'll give you some of my how much more practices and maybe as I'm doing one, you can think of one and if you want to shout one out, you can. If knowing a little bit of rabbinic thought and interpretation helps me to understand Jesus, how much more will knowing a lot of rabbinic thought and interpretation help me to know Jesus? If I am good with Jesus in my life, how much worse would I be with Jesus out of my life? If I do good without Jesus in my life, say I don't know him, but I'm a good person, how much more good could I do with him in my life? If I feel lonely, depressed, exhausted now, how much more lost, lonely, and depressed would I be without him? If Kevin loves my dog this well, how much more will he love me and our children and all of the people in his church? If I love my mother and father this much, 
how much more then should I love God who created me and gave me life? If God cares for the lilies of the valley and the birds of the field, how much more will he care for me? Any how much more is in your life? So just hang out with Jesus, sit at the feet of the rabbi, get a little dusty, and try to figure out what it is he might be saying. So what we're going to do then this summer, for all of us interested, is I'm going to start a couple gospel reading groups. So if you would like to get together and sit and read through Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, we're going to start some summer gospel reading groups, and we're just going to read it and talk about it and try to see what we discover. And the reason why we're doing this is because if we know this much about Jesus and we love him, how much more will we love him when we know this much about him? All right, so we'll put those sign-ups online. I'm going to invite Kevin and the band up. And I want to thank you guys so much for um, hanging out with Jesus and getting to know him a little bit better um, as he teaches each one of us, me included, and we get to see more of who he is.